Guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Qualcast Nation, we have a dynamic, special, authentic episode here with Dr. Julian Abel. I fully enjoyed this, talking to a fellow palliative care physician, author, podcaster, host of Survival of the Kindest, TEDx speaker. And in this talk, building compassionate communities not only improves quality of life, but also literally saves lives. I can't wait for you to hear the content of this, how some of these community in- initiatives of creating kindness, creating engagement, encouraging collaboration within these communities, how it's impacted so many people, how it's saved lives, how it's reduced healthcare utilization is beautiful. Julian is a gem. But before we dive into it, I want to tell you about one of our most exciting initiatives coming up, Solving Wellness. We are here to support our fellow healthcare providers the best way we can. And you know, there's tons of burnout. There's tons of stress, especially in this part of the pandemic. And we created a virtual program where we get fitness, yoga, mindfulness, stress management, cooking classes. We're trying to bring it all so that we can improve quality of life for our healthcare providers, reduce that burnout and create that sense of community. So stay tuned. We'll have a big announcement this Saturday on how you could be part of of the movement of solving wellness. All right, so let's get to it. Our conversation on the magic of compassion. Let's go, Dr. Julian Abel. Quarkast Nation, I can't tell you how jazzed up I am about our next guest because we speak the same language. We're cut from the same cloth. Fellow palliative care doc, Dr. Julian Abel, podcaster, TED speaker. Uh, no, I'm not. I ain't no TED speaker, but you know what I'm saying? Like, this is the kind of level we're talking about. Researcher. And we're going to talk all things compassion. Julian, thanks for joining us, my friend. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. It's such a pleasure to be here. And uh, I totally agree about being cut from the same cloth. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, we did have a little bit of a preamble before we press record. And yeah, we, we shared a laugh or two. Um, I think maybe just a great place to start, Julian, is like your story. Like what got you into palliative care? What got you thinking about compassion? Because well, as we were talking about before we pressed the record button, 
I think this is something that's maybe lacking in the world right now. And I think what we're talking about today is going to resonate to so many of our, our listeners. So yeah, what got you into this space? Right, so uh, so I'm quite long in the tooth now. Um, <laughs> graying, balding, you know, <laughs> you get older. <laughs> and uh, I qualified in, uh, in medicine in 1982, and um, and I have to say it was a bit of a culture shock. I went into hospital, and I I wasn't expecting it. And what I saw was a, a some kind of mad hierarchy of which the you know the consultants the chief doctors were at the top um the medical students came beneath the nurses mm-hmm. and finally below the porters he got the patients <laughs> <laughs> i wondered what i'd walked into i thought what is this <laughs> and, and I, I was quite interested in the model of chinese medicine where um the chinese uh the Chinese doctor serves the population, and if people get ill, they stop getting paid. You know, so I kind of mm. like that. Anyway, so I got interested in in um, Chinese medicine, acupuncture, and osteopathy, and I left medicine for a while because I was so freaked out by the hierarchy. I thought this is not the place for me. But then, uh, after a while, I started reader happened to come across some books about palliative care, um, about how people were looking after uh, other people who are dying. And uh, in the the time that I'd left medicine and the decision to go back to it, actually, it was quite all right to have practiced a bit of acupuncture, you know, particularly going into palliative medicine. So Mm. I went back into, uh, trained as a a general physician, I went back and went into palliative medicine. And after a few years of uh, palliative medicine, I, I had a kind of uh, moment where I just, I'd been thinking about how do we relieve the problems of uh, people who are suffering from uh, terminal illnesses. And I don't, just one morning, it's just like, oh my God, <laughs> it's not just about the patient, it's about everyone. It's mm. about all of us. It's about the the network of people who surround the person who who has got the illness because it's how that those relationships all weave together to form this strong support. And it's not just the relationships with the person with the illness, it's the relationships between the caring network themselves and uh, and and it just and you know and then i came across the work of alan keller here and compassionate communities and it just seemed to make a lot of sense it seemed that um that well the way that i saw it was that that medicine had just become increasingly professionalized and had left behind the the whole cultural practices that go along with death dying loss and caregiving and it seemed so rich and, and that it wasn't just about sadness, um, that it was about meaning and value and joy and laughter and friendship. And there was incredible amount of the really important stuff of life that, that goes on in this space. And, uh, and it just made a huge amount of sense to me. And, uh, and I've always been strong-willed and stubborn. And, um, and <laughs> I just like, oh, no, I'm into this. I'm going to study this more and do more of it and just found my way like that, just did it more and more and became... It's not that um, that the kind of traditional palliative medicine doesn't have a place, but I think it's symptom science 
whether they're physical, social, psychological, or spiritual, fits in the context of if you, what we call the public health approach. It fits into the context of uh, the much bigger stuff that goes along end-of-life care, how we treat each other as human beings. Mm. And at the very heart of that lies compassion. Mm. And so, so uh, I just got increasingly interested in that with some really surprising results, as we'll hear. You know? yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it, it's a really good point you make about that holistic viewpoint when it comes to care, especially, you know, with that palliative care lens. I can't tell you how often, I mean, I'm, pre- I'm preaching to the choir, how, whether it's their symptoms, whether there's ex- ex- existential uh, um, distress, like we really need to be looking at the, the patient as a whole and their environment and their community to really get through to them, to get to that result that we're looking for. And the other thing that you mentioned that I, I think um, sometimes people maybe uh, maybe it doesn't sink in for a lot of our folks is, you know, it, it, when it comes to end of life, it doesn't all have to be doom and gloom. They're, they're, you know, I, I don't know if you get this question a lot, but people often ask me why you do palliative care. It's not, it seems so melancholic. And some of my most memorable moments as a clinician has been th- those moments of connection with the family and the patient. The remembering those great times, remember the, that Christmas dinner where, you know, the grandma, you know, was doing something silly. Like this, these are the times where, selfishly as a clinician, I, I truly, truly cherish. So I, I just, I couldn't go over uh, hearing that and, and not comment on, you know, the, 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 those moments as, as a palliative care doc. So I did, uh, I, I developed this, I completely agree. I developed this training, um, which is about getting people to explore their personal networks. And uh, in particular, you know, that if you stand in a room of 100 people, you know, it's about like palliative care professionals and say, uh, hands up if any of you have looked after someone close to you in the last year who's died, last two years, last five years. By the time you get to five years, nearly everyone puts their hand up. Nearly everyone has got personal experience of this. And during this training, I asked them uh, about what matters most. What were the things when you were part of a caring network, what matters most? And, and people, you know, if they're professionals, they kind of go, oh, the nurses and the doctors were great. You go, yeah, 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 go on. But what made the biggest difference to you? And, and, and then you get into it. And then when somebody dropped a meal around and, or when somebody did the garden, I just like, uh, they just came around and did the garden. Or, and then they, this phrase came up, uh, which just really really stuck, struck home for me when somebody said, yeah, it's a love, laughter and friendship. Mm. And I've used that phrase ever since because it expresses it so beautifully. And uh, I think one of the things that we, that we probably don't talk about enough in palliative care, when things are harmonious and in place, when, when there's that love that is circulating around, where people feel connected and part of it, there is this moment of grace where you just sit back and feel this presence of something special. Mm. And, and, you know, that, that kind of thing, it always 
it just amazes me about, you know, this incredible stuff. Maybe, maybe it's my ignorance, but framing it that way, like I've always had that feeling. It's the feeling that you, you almost long for in our, our profession, that grace, but the framing it as like loving laughter, you know, like this is, this is exactly it. I, I, I guess I'm a bit, um, it's an aha moment for me because these, these are the moments we cherish. These are the moments that families remember. These are the moments that clinicians remember. And, you know, it's, you know, we, part of my job or our job, I think is important to, is to help families recreate that, you know, and yeah. I don't know if that's just innate. I don't know if you have a sense of whether we have any part in, in being able to create that Julian, or you think that's ah. just because of their network. I, I think anyone can do it. Uh, if you, uh, you know, I think it's part of being a human being. And and you know, I got interested all of the, in all of this stuff, you know, like a decade ago. And and then my mum got ill with uh, she had a, a acute myeloid leukemia, of which there was no treatment. And and while she was still in hospital, we uh, we were like, okay, now. I swing all my knowledge into action. Let's create the caring network. And my family came around and, and it was amazing. Like there was a, a period of a month where we just scooped up my mom and everyone cared for each other. And, and it was transformational for so many people. And, and what was really interesting was, uh, I don't know whether interesting is the right word, but somehow amazing was the fact that my mom was a, a Jewish refugee. She uh, uh, left. Uh, Czechoslovakia when she aged nine she went on the kinder train and uh, and I, I you know I can't imagine what that would have been like for her but coming to England she didn't speak a word of English you know uh, her own mother ended up in a concentration camp and uh, her father didn't visit her for months on end and 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 she always had a sense of unease about her she had a sense of yearning for something mm. And all of that went away. I have never seen her so peaceful and harmonious as she was in that time. And, and we all treasured that. And we all treasured the relationships that we developed uh, as a consequence of that. And what I really liked about that was, to me, was it was a fact that this was personal. If, I, if I'm doing this and it's working in my own home, with my own parents, it's working. Mm. If I'm doing it with patients, it's working. It's real. And amazingly, you know, my stepfather got diagnosed with uh, metastatic prostate cancer uh, actually before my mum died. And, and then the, this caring network just swung into place for, for him for the four years that he lived. And again, he was the most content I've seen him in that time. Oh you know, again, goodness. the troubled lives. And so, so yeah, it's a, I think it's something about, this is, you know, when, when we talk about professionalization of death, is that, the, the, you know, when you hand over the responsibility, oh, death, die, oh, and the nurses do that, you know, you lose those cultural, social practices of mm. how to look after people in this this precious moment, this precious time, I, and and like the overflowing of loving kindness and compassion and peace that comes with it, it's a, it's an incredible moment for it. And and cultural practices are really important in that time. 
what and I don't necessarily mean religious culture. I mean how we do that as people. Do you know what comes to mind? Like number one, sort of hear about your stepdad and your in your mother. The the thing that comes to mind often is, uh, especially in my world in the ICU, there's a lot of death denial. We see a lot of it, and what breaks my heart is that you know there's these moments that they're missing out on. You yeah. know that would are healing that is going to bond that family. It's going to connect them. It's going to help with the grieving process. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's just hard to, to see that, you know, that lack of acceptance. And I think part of it is a, sometimes a societal issue. Like we don't talk about death and dying enough and, and it's, it's in some ways stigmatized, but man, this is, this is why acceptance is so important, you know, yeah. to yeah. really create the, 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 you know, that the healing essentially. That's it. Uh, but I, I think I totally agree. And sudden death is particularly tricky. And uh, especially if it's sudden death with a young person, my God, that's mm. heartbreaking. But there's also uh, something about how does the community respond to that? Mm-hmm. And we always have that potential for healing. There's always a potential for, for compassion and kindness. And so there's still things you can do as a community response to people who are traumatized by sudden death. There's still about how communities rally around and how they support each other. And, and, you know, amazing things like peer support bereavement networks is one of the most incredible things I've seen in medicine is, you know, people who develop relationships through a peer support bereavement network seven years later. The people who, who I thought were going to commit suicide through bereavement, they were so distraught at losing their husband, turn into the most joyous person. You, you just wouldn't imagine it, you know. So, uh, so there's always that potential. It doesn't matter what stage. It's one of the great things about humans is we always have the potential to respond to compassion. Wow. This is fantastic because, you know, it, it's a good point. Like It doesn't have to be – like there's always a time that we can intervene you know, down the road. I, I, cause I think this is really important too, to think about Julian, as we think about the stage in, in, a, in the pandemic. So I'm in right now, Ottawa, Canada. We just found out today that we're going into a, like a more severe lockdown. Um, and what we see often in the hospital setting is limited, limited visitors, more, more restrictions in terms of who could come see mom or dad. Uh, even if they're the, they are at the end of their life. And I think maybe it's important for caregivers in the community to hear that message that even if it can't connect in the hospital, there's still a role that community could have, you know, afterwards, because I think, you know, it's a lot, it's a big area for, I'll tell you, there's a lot of moral distress amongst my colleagues yeah. when it comes to this. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, I did a podcast with uh, three other palliative care physicians just before Christmas, and we were talking about this. And, uh, and Mark Talbot, who's a professor of palliative care in Wales, was talking about how they moved the palliative care unit onto the ground floor so that people could come to the window even to, wow. uh, to try and just have a conversation with their relatives. And there's another palliative care physician who's uh, called Rachel Clark, who... Uh, um, was was talking about how she looked out the window of a hospital 
And the car park was full of cars of people just sitting there to be close to, at least oh even within kind of physical proximity of the person that they couldn't visit, couldn't talk to. And I mean, it's heartbreaking for everyone. You know, it's heartbreaking for the families and it's heartbreaking for the staff trying to deal with this incredibly difficult situation. Oh, yeah. That, that, I don't know why that makes me a little verklempt thinking about family members in in the parking lot, just wanting to be close. Like I, yeah. that, that's something I, you know, I haven't noticed. And I'm wondering if this is something globally happening, you know, that uh, people doing their best. I mean, we've, uh, we've been in situations where patients or families have just pulled their way through, you know, just really being that desperate to see family, their loved one, but Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, I think what, what I love so much about this is, everything is rooted from a good place of like compassion. And I think, I think maybe we could speak a little bit about the power of compassion, the power of community. And if you're, if if you're up for it, compassionate communities, this is, this is one of your, your babies for lack of a better word. This is something you're really excited about. And maybe speak to us a little bit about what that means. Compassionate communities. Okay, so look, the basis of this is compassion, and there's a story that goes behind it. And and if if you find I'm going too far off track, just tell me to shut up because I go on forever, you know, about this stuff. No, it's all good. In the worst case scenario, <laughs> it's edited, but I, I want to hear more. It's okay. all good. So 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 when we think about compassion, you say, well, first of all, what's compassion? And and it like human emotions don't fit neatly into. Uh, like little emotional definition boxes. But mm. it's a kind of useful way of thinking about it to say, well, look, I don't like to suffer. Uh, I don't like seeing other people suffering because I don't like suffering and I'm willing to do something about it, something really practical. Now, when we think about compassion, like culturally, we t- tend to think of it as something is, that is uh, the domain of religions. But in fact, it's not like that at all. And when you look at what, you know, those moments where, where you hold your child's hand or you kiss the person you love or, or even in those light moments where you go down the shops and you just chat to a nice person and you go, wow, that was a nice person. Or, or when we chat on the podcast, you go, oh, this is great. Like, yeah. th- these moments are that you can measure what's happening on a biochemical level. So, um, you get a little shot of oxytocin, which has a ripple effect on the people around you. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, okay, so how come oxytocin does that? Well, can we find oxytocin in, in all humans or primates or animals? And if you look everywhere, you find oxytocin and oxytocin receptors, which is the hallmark of socializing behavior in all animals. Not just, mm. not just vertebrates. Uh, if you've ever seen a film called My Octopus Teacher, you know that octopuses have got this really well sorted out. Anyway, uh, and, and so what, what, what we're saying is that compassion is something that's present in all animals and especially in humans and because we are the most social of animals. And in fact, when you start looking for it, and there's a lot of this work coming out now, is that survival of the kindness is a much better description of how we got through the, to be so widespread in this planet. We didn't, we, we didn't 
survived by beating our chests and killing the people around them. We survived by helping each other out. And, and, mm. and there's plenty of anthropological evidence of it. Whether you're looking at old bones and looking at, you know, um, the type of places that people lived and how they helped us, or whether you're looking at um, indigenous peoples, you find that that compassion is absolutely fundamental to human existence. You know, that the, the phrase survival of the fittest is, is uh, not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, it was not invented by Charles Darwin. It was invented by a, um, a British philosopher of the 19th century, uh, and it, which has basically got imperialistic racist overtones to it. It's just a justifying British imperialism. And survival of the kindest is... is is a much better description of, uh, of how we evolved. And somehow we've lost that. Somehow we think that being successful is about being wealthy, is about being powerful and being beautiful and all of that. But actually, you can turn that on its head and you can say the wealth is not financial but our relationships. And when you start looking at the evidence of that, how effective is that improving our health? It turns out, absolutely amazingly, that good social relationships are more effective at keeping us alive than giving up smoking, drinking, diet, exercise, and everything else you care mm. to mention. And what that means is the most powerful therapeutic tool we have is our social relationships. It's, it's four times more effective than preventing us dying than giving up than blood treatment, treatment of high blood pressure. You know, so, so what we're looking at is, that, okay, let's take the most powerful therapeutic tool we have, which is social relationships, the heart of which is compassion, the heart of which is building compassionate communities. And then you can, with that in mind, you think, okay, community building, social connection, doing something about loneliness, the quality of the relationships we have is something that we can actively engage in. And we can engage in it at the, in our own lives. We can engage in it in our communities. We can engage in it as doctors, as medical professions, whether we're generalist or specialist. But we can all feed in to this nourishment, this precious treasure that we carry around with us. And Compassionate Communities is a methodology for doing that in communities and for linking healthcare to it. Yo, you know how brilliant this is? Like, honestly, like, I, I want this to register to y'all listening, okay? When we talk about, and th- we're talking about the impacts of community and compassion and connection, this is like, you know, Julian's not talking out of his behind. You know, there's data to back this up. Yeah, this is more powerful than stopping smoking, than reducing your alcohol consumption, like all the things that, you know, obviously make a lot of sense, but this is the power of connection. And we've seen this, man. We've even seen it during the pandemic. We've seen people in their long-term care facilities die of loneliness and that lack of connection. And, and so this is something that is ingrained in us. This is something that is in our DNA. And this is something that we all need to tap into and acknowledge because, you know, this is, um, this is health. So I, I, I just got to take a second to like really emphasize how um, important 
this is. And so maybe, maybe Julian, like what, what about some concrete examples? Like I, I know about the, um, in terms of, in terms of uh, experience or evidence to kind of support this uh, claim. Okay, I've got I've got four pieces, and as you can imagine, these are well rehearsed. The first is the impact of social relationships, and there's a fantastic, incredibly well referenced paper being being been referenced something like three thousand times by Professor Julianne Holt Lundstad in uh, uh, Brigham Young University in in Utah. She wrote a paper called "Social Relationships and Mortality: uh, Meta at an Meta Analytic." review of which she looked at uh, for 148 studies and over 300,000 people and and she produced this incredible graph which showed the impact of social relationships on mortality over a 7.5 year period you know this is a small period of time and even in that small period of time it was more powerful than anything else the converse side of that is uh, uh, the impact of loneliness on mortality and morbidity and um, and the figures are somewhat you know surprising that if you're lonely, you have a thirty percent increased risk of dying. If if it, it'll increase your risk of stroke, heart disease, whatever. And if you've got heart disease, you <laughs> your risk of being admitted to hospital if you're lonely is increased by four times. I mean, the figures are nuts, you know. Mm. The third bit of evidence that I really like is uh, the evidence that comes out of the Harvard and Gluek studies of adult development. And these are studies that began in 1938 in, um, in Harvard and in Boston, looking at initially at the lives of men. Every year, they, um, they did a test on these men and they tracked them through. It's still ongoing today. They're in their third generation. There's a fantastic TED Talk by... Uh, um, Robert Waldinger, who's a fourth study lead because it's gone on for so long. And it's really clear, if you want to lead a long, healthy, happy life, it's all about relationship. And then mm-hmm. the fourth bit of evidence that I'm particularly partial to is what happened in Froome. Now, Froome is a town in the southwest of England of 28,000 people. And uh, I used to live quite near there and I was doing something around end of life care and compassionate communities. And I came into contact with the people, of, in, the doctors in Froome and the team there. And we realized we were doing the same thing. So we just joined up. Uh, we joined forces and learned from each other and explored, explored together. And, and after, uh, uh, after I'd been there a number of months, we, uh, we were trying to figure out how we we're going to maintain our funding. And we wondered whether the, this project was doing any good. We knew it was loads of stories about doing good. So we looked at the emergency admissions to hospital. And what we found was that over a four-year period, the emergency admissions hospital in Froome dropped by 14% whole population emergency admissions, while in the rest of Somerset, a a county of 500,000 people, they went up by 30%. And the unique thing about this is there are no interventions which have ever reduced population emergency admissions. If this were a tablet, it would be a medical miracle, the likes of which we've not seen before. It was like, like when we saw the results, honestly, I, I was, you know, open mouth, gaping at the results. Uh, oh, my <laughs> God. And what, what's really nice about that is that 
that we have something really tangible and measurable that relates to compassion and communities. You know, mm. groundbreaking results, just remarkable. So, so uh, and, and for me, that's where, you know, by the time you piece those bits of information together, you know, you have moved so far away from, oh, this is something religious to this is something human. This mm. is something we all have, you know, and when you apply it, the results are incredible. Once again, people, this is a, a time period of limited resources. You do this simple, simple intervention that's actually going to improve the well-being of your people and reduce spending. Like, what more can you ask for? Can you give us a sense of like what the interventions look like? Okay, because we worked all of this out because we've 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 uh, re- you know replicated it elsewhere. So. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a bit of it which is about the changes inside the GP practice because we're talking about, you know, if you think about the drug treatment of hypertension, there's a, there's a bit which is about, okay, you have to do a screening and then you do a diagnosis and then you do prescribe a treatment and then you do follow-up. Well, what we're saying is social, social relationships are more effective than hypertension. Like how many times have you been to the doctor and had your blood pressure checked and how many times have you had your social relationships checked? And by the yeah. way, if you get your social relationships checked, your blood pressure will come down. Anyway, so, uh, the, <laughs> the, so, so it's about how you build that into the GP surgery. How do you make sure that you're paying attention to uh, this, this community connectedness, social connectedness on a routine level? And, and you change the way the GP, the primary care team works, uh, family medicine, I think you call it, um, that... Um, that you make sure that you've got the multidisciplinary team and that the other big component is about community development. So what needs to go on in the community? And there are four key things about what happens in the community. So the, the first of these is that when you, if you know, uh, so Ottawa has got a Compassionate Communities Project already uh, and you've got some great people there. And, and they started to list of all the stuff that goes on in the community, walking groups, um, friendship cafes, um, sewing group, reading group, choirs, you know, you start little out. And what you find is that there's about, you know, you'll find thousands of stuff going on in your community. So why not stick them on a website that's easy to access? So it makes sense, doesn't it? So if people want mm. to use it. Well, if you've got everything on a website and you've got all these groups going on and you've got the friendship cafes and you know, the talking cafes, well, why, don't, why not train community members to uh, let them know about what's going on? So this trainer, what we call community connectors, takes between 20 minutes and two hours, and here's a piece of magic, and this is amazing. So far in Froome, there are over 700 community connectors trained. We know that on average, they have 20 conversations a year about when they come across people in the town uh, where they, they, they come across some kind of problem, and they go, well, I don't know the answer to that, but I know where you may be able to get an answer to it. 20 conversations, 700 people, 14,000 conversations in a town of 28,000 people. Each conversation a little explosion of oxytocin, a little Mm. uh, ripple effect of compassion. And so when you walk around the town, if you go into a cafe, if you go into the library, if a community support officer who helps a policeman, they're listening out for you. 
And in fact, this is a deep dive into the community. And it's why Froome is known as a friendly place and why people are moving to Froome because they know <laughs> it's a friendly place. And then, and then oh. the, the next bit is, uh, is around um, uh, one-to-one work with health connectors. Like some people, if you ask them about what their main problems are, they just can't figure it out. And they just need a bit of help in figuring out what their main problems are. And if they're ill or if they're well, you know, can, and it means that you can pay attention to social connectedness of people who really need, need that one-to-one attention and they can get referred into all the stuff that's going on into the community. And then the last bit is about groups. And um, uh, there's, a, there's a guy called James Maskell who's written a, a book called The Community Cure, which is, look, it's just saying basically that social relationships are a really important part of health. So why don't we take a group setting for people who are unwell so that they can develop the social relationships, which in themselves are therapeutic, and explore and learn together in how to solve their own problems. The amount mm. of medical information you need to give is, is small. Like if you think about diabetics and dietary advice, and I, I know that, uh, I know that you've, you've had quite a few people on who talk about low carbohydrate, healthy fat diets, and keto, that kind of stuff. That stuff goes on in the community. You know, people figure it out for themselves. They look at websites, they get recipe books, et cetera, et cetera. And they figure out where they go shopping. They figure out how they can have a nice time eating together and cooking together and whatever it is. That kind of stuff has a powerful therapeutic effect. You know, so, so when you think about, okay, we now, the, like the journey of a patient is different. So, you know, you take... Uh, uh, um, the, um, somebody come in with severe rheumatoid arthritis, you know, newly diagnosed and they get a flare up of their illness. And it's like, okay, look, we can give you medicine, but that's only part of the story, you know, because the other part of the story is, uh, why don't you meet other people who are going through it? And then, um, why don't you go to the pain management group and the exercise group? And, and why not go to the talking cafe if you're feeling a bit isolated and lonely and let's see what your neighbors are up to and how they can help out. And, and then you find somebody gets reintegrated into life because this loss of sense of community, of social connectedness is affecting us all, you know. Absolutely. What I'm really excited about a couple, couple points is how much this can be amplified like you got people coming into from like like the the population's increasing they're coming in because of the that community piece that compassion piece and that's going to amplify you know you know it, when you go into that library when you go into that grocery store you there's more likely you're going to have a positive interaction a compassionate interaction as a result of that muscle being used throughout the community it's like it's yeah. that's exciting and the other part that i think I'm hoping like our target audience is young trainees, like, because, you know, older docs, we don't change. <laughs> we're, we're a bit uh, dinosaur like, but when they hear that piece, when they're setting up that clinic, you got to think, yes, it's not enough to say, yes, you're going to go on your methotrexate and your, you know, prednisone, whatever uh, medication for your rheumatoid. What, what, what are we going to do from that community piece? That's a, that's, I need that box ticks. You know what I mean? This is part of your healing. This is your holistic approach 
to getting you functional and better. Yeah. Like it's not enough. Like I think we need to reinforce this, that it's not enough just to give that prescription. Or if you're going to put that prescription, add that social, uh, a social prescribing saying it's, it's, you know, you're going to be in at this community group. You're going to have a chance to connect and uh, add that compassion piece. I think we need to actively push this message to the kids. I definitely, and, and, and it is an amazing thing. So um, uh, I've just, along with Alan Keller here, we've just finished editing the first uh, Oxford textbook, Public Health Palliative Care. And uh, as part of that, I wrote a chapter on health and well-being. What does it mean? And, uh, and, and this is just, you know, in relation to palliative care. So I looked, uh, went through the literature about what health and well-being is, means in the palliative setting. And the amazing thing is, it's not just that the literature is sparse, it's absent. We, <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't even know what health and well-being looks like in the palliative setting. And, uh, and yet it's well described outside of palliative care. And so then like, you're thinking that I, we have made the assumption that if we address the physical, the social, the psychological, and the spiritual symptoms, then health and well-being ensue. And it's not the case because you can address all of those things and people may remain lonely and depressed and isolated. But when you think about we got this massive therapeutic tool, when you start looking at the caring networks that that surround people, which might be anything from 10 to 200, just through people that people that you know, you then see you've got this huge resource of love and support, which might be expressed through tasks, and it might be expressed through, like we were saying, love, laughter, and friendship. And when you when you actually bring that into action, that's where all the magic happens. And that's as true for medicine in general and communities in general as it is for palliative care you know how can we support each other as human beings because when we're compassionate we know it's a good thing we don't have to be told we feel it in our hearts and our bones you know it's like yeah i got something from that no that is that is brilliant it's funny uh when you said the overall well-being of palliative patients what's the medical literature on that i was scrolling through my brain i'm like i don't know if i've ever seen a, a piece even on this like an opinion piece i don't even think i've, I've come across one so when you said there was zero i was like i guess so well but uh, it's still shocking, it's shocking. Um, because it's you know especially when you think of the new like the true definition of palliative uh, medicine like this you know our patients could be We've seen patients that have two-year prognosis, like you know, like we're 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 getting involved earlier in their illness. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> this is an absolute essential piece. But <laughs> yeah, that is mind blowing in so, so many ways. We started. There's this whole thing about advanced care planning, you know, which is a, which is all the rage. And yeah, we've got to do advanced care planning. And when you look at the literature and advanced care planning completion rates. What you see is it's about 5%. Uh, even in cancer patients, you know, most people are not making decisions about advanced care planning. And the, and the main reason for this is actually what people really want to know is 
how can they live well right up until the end? What yeah. matters most to them? You know, not about where do you want to die? Do you want to be resuscitated? Do you want to have intravenous antibiotics and IV fluids? It's not that those questions aren't important, but they are only important if people know how to live well. So we've mm-hmm. now, we're now going through a process of, of, uh, uh, repositioning advanced care planning into what matters most conversations so Mm. that at the start of the contact with palliative care, you can say, well, what matters most to you? And then, then you can, we can work with our patients to go, okay, let's find out what living well is for you and let's do what we can to make that happen as much as possible. And when you ask that question, often it comes back to love, laughter and friendship. That's the thing that matters yeah. most. The people we know and love in the places we know and love, you know. Yeah. Okay. What I love, Julian, about that uh, is, once again, focusing on, you know, the positive. How does that patient want to live their life? And, you know, because all these interventions that we add, like, you know, it's hard to, for patients to really know in that, you know, what does having IV fluids mean, being under an endotracheal too? Like, what does that really mean? But if we have that value piece, like what's important to them, how they want to live, this is extremely important in terms of the guiding the decisions. One thing I was going to ask you in terms of the community piece, because of, once again, I, I hate to always bring back COVID. A lot of the times we can't interact face to face. And we got to do a lot of the virtual versions of this. Do you think it's still feasible when we're at a distance, when we're, we're having to interact like we're interacting now? So, so it's not as good as face-to-face, but it's a lot better than not interacting. And, and humans are incredibly creative. You know, it's one of the amazing things about us. And we find ways of interacting, which might be through a window with our neighbors. It might be over the fence. It might be, you know, th- through WhatsApp or Zoom or whatever it is. And, and uh, the, I think that the visual face-to-face thing is really important. Uh, how so that we can see what the interactions of what we say is on the people we're talking to. There's an amazing thing here, you know, because we learn about our social interactions from the moment we're born. The first thing we learn is we you look into our mother's eyes. And then we, you, what you find is young babies will mimic the expression of, uh, of the person they're looking at. And that we spend probably the bulk of our lives, but the first 20 years of really figuring out about social relationship. We do it so naturally, we don't even know we're doing it. And sometimes we do it really badly and the lessons go horribly wrong. <laughs> you think about young men, I mean, <laughs> young men and girlfriends, how do you navigate that? How do you learn about all of that? Oh man, we can get it badly wrong. But, <laughs> and, but it's, it's a really important part of us and we develop incredible sensitivity, so much so that that first moment where you see someone, that moment where you walk into a patient's room and they look you in the eye and you look them in the eye and they know straight away whether you have integrity and honesty. They know, they sense that in that moment. So that, the, that we can approximate that as best we can with a set of pixels and it's not nothing. You know, we're talking to each other and we're having a nice time and that actually counts for that counts for a lot. Uh, so it, we can be creative about it, but it's not as good as giving someone a 
damn good hug. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's funny. It's funny you say this uh, about about you know that first impression that that eye contact when you first meet a patient, a patient whether they could sense whether you have integrity or not, or you get a sense of your character. It's, it's funny. Like, you, I don't know. So I, I feel like I, I have that similar view. I don't know if like um, a lot of the literature supports that or not, but there is something where you, you know, that, that initial interaction, like you, you could feel that connection sometimes with that patient. The second you walk in the door, at the same token, you could walk in that door and you'd be like, this is going to be a tough interview. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, an important point to think about, especially when I think of the trainees. I come in with that energy, come in with that lens that you're going to have that compassionate view and, and approach because I think patients will sense that. It's a, it's a very good, very good point. The other thing I, w- I wanted to, to bring up too is we, ch- we were chatting a little bit beforehand about there's a movement, like, this is a thing, like, there seems to be more and more of a movement towards creating community, um, out, whether it's in medicine or outside of medicine. Like, there is, like, I think people recognize that this is lacking now. And I don't know if you, you're noticing the same thing within your circles or what have you, but I think this this is another point to really show that that community piece, that compassion piece, really matters I, I think that's i think i hope that one of the positive aspects of the pandemic is it shows how important social connected is to us and social connections are and I, and uh, it's been going on since before then and it's just been increasing in pace over the last 20 years i would say but this whole aspect of communities stepping up to the mark to look after each other, not waiting for, uh, for to be done to by services, but taking responsibility into their own hands. And there are some fantastic examples, and, and it's growing in pace. And, uh, you know, in the, there's the ABCD Institute in the U.S., um, which is spread all over the world. And uh, Cormac Russell is uh, head of an organization called Nurture Development, which takes the ABCD approach everywhere. Amazing work about how, how that whole process of nourishing communities. And that includes, you know, First Nations communities in Canada or Indigenous communities all over the world or, or deprived communities in the UK doesn't matter. Uh, there's also a great uh, uh, organization called Weave uh, in the US, which is part of the Aspen Institute. And, uh, and they are about um, weaving the social fabric, about trying to knit people together. Because one of the things that, you, that, that they say and what we see from across the Atlantic is that you've got a deeply divided nation. Where, where the antipathy between different groups has got so bad, people actually kill each other. It's shocking. And, and how do you bring people together so you can develop that trust? You've got the cynical manipulation of extremist views for political purpose, and goodness knows why people are doing that. But if we are going to become more compassionate in our communities, if we're going to support each other, then it's a, we have to build the trust and the relationships. And a lot of these community projects are 
getting community members together to start figuring out what we have in common. And what we have in common far outweighs what our differences. And this is something that's happening all over the world, and you see some incredible examples of it. Uh, I, I hope that over the next 20 years, while we've seen the green shoots of this growing, that we see an absolute flourishing of this stuff everywhere that we transform our communities, that we make use of the treasure that we have of human beings, which is compassion, and actually put that into action. And let's see that flourish in all places. If we're going to change, if we're going to alter the course of this planet, it will be through that alone. Wow. I mean, <laughs> so powerful. Like, I mean, if there is that, I mean, I guess that's that's the power of compassion. It's the willingness to be open it's a willingness to find that common ground it's a it's a willingness to hear others it's the willingness to change and you know i i i hope you're right like i i think we every day i get a bit of a reminder of how important it is like as a society you know whether you know where you see political issues uh related to the pandemic you see uh you know, related to, you know, uh, racism, systemic racism, you know, I, I, you know, you see the, uh, you know, the issues with, you know, in the States when Trump was in power, like, I, I just think if we do come in, in with that lens of compassion, so much more can be done. And, and the other part of it too is, this might be a little out of left field. I think people could even look at themselves and have a little bit more self-compassion. It's a very, you know, it's a critical world out there and it's hard not to take some of that in. And so I think, um, especially right, you know, I keep bringing back the pandemic. I know it's fresh, fresh in mind. My wife's a psychologist. And so we, you're seeing a lot of people struggling right now. And I think some of that solution is not only, you know, reaching out, get, getting the community piece, the compassion piece, but also that self-compassion, like you're, it's okay. You know, you're not alone in your struggles, but yeah, I think that lens and, and really preaching and being examples of it too, Julian, like always, like I'm a big believer of be the change. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, when we speak to others, when, you know, you and I both have social profiles where people are listening, you know, you know, bring that lens of compassion, not the shaming when it comes to many of these issues, but bring that compassion piece and see and be a role model to others that this is the path forward. Definitely. Definitely. And, and, you know, we carry around this thing with us. We should make good use of it and we should make good, good use of it for ourselves. And I, I think I, I, you probably do this too. I had, uh, a repeated discussion, particularly with people who are dying, who who weren't able to do the things that they recognize themselves with. You know, they weren't able to earn the money, drive the car, do the washing up, do the cooking, whatever it is. And the loss of that role made them feel less of a person. And they mm-hmm. felt like they were a burden. And so I used to have this conversation with people and, and nearly everyone. Well, if you were looking after your your wife or your husband or uh, would you think of them less of a person? Would you love them less because mm. they're not able to do the things of life? Maybe they're mm. not able, you know, they can't be the big person or earn the money or whatever it is. And the answer is, of course, you love people for 
who they are. And, and I think we get totally lost in thinking that we should love people because they're great and famous and rich. And it's not like that at all. The people we cherish are the people who are dear to us. Uh, so we, if we stop thinking about our position and worrying about it and think about the richness is, you know, what Cormac Russell calls the associational life, the quality of our relationships. If we think that that's really important, then, and it is because it's how we live a long, healthy, happy life, we can then stop worrying so much about whether we're good enough and just be kind, just be a yeah. bit more compassionate. And, and, yeah. and we'll reap the rewards of that, of wealth beyond riches. Yeah, I, I can't, like you and I, once again, we're talking beforehand about, uh, you know, the moments that, w- that you will look back in life and, and cherish. And it's not accolades, it's not, you know, the amount of money you've made, you know, for me, like even for me personally, thinking about some of the comments you get from some of the advocacy work that we've been doing, families through the charities, the, you know, the role modeling for young black youth, like that's the stuff that lingers. That's the stuff that you remember, you know, those moments with your families. Like I got three young boys that, you know, those times where we laughing at the dinner table, playing outside, you know, and this is, I mean, I'm saying this now, but this is the stuff that our families and and, and patients say themselves. It's not that promotion that they got, you know, in their GM dealership that they're thinking about at the end of their life. It's, it really is that connection piece. It's the family, it's their friends. It's the, I'm going to screw it up again. Uh, friendship, laughter, love. That's it. Yeah, there we go. That, that it truly is what the, the reflections are at end of life. That's it. And I, I never heard anyone say, do you know, I wish I'd spent more time at work. <laughs> Yeah, no, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Listen, Julian, I got to This before we jump off, I got to give some straight up love for a lot of the stuff that you're doing. And I'm going to give you a chance to, to bust that out too. You know, author of the compassion project. You could tell us a bit of, about the survival of kindness, amazing podcast and the, the summit series, elevate compassion that's coming through. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with you. Okay, so uh, I started this. Uh, uh, I wanted to to really be able to demonstrate about the presence and absence of compassion uh, and the impact of that. And so I, I thought, oh, great, podcast, you know, and it's one of the best things I've done, talking to people like you and people from all <laughs> over the world. It's amazing. And you hear about the presence and absence of compassion, uh, and we called it survival of the kindest, just be, just to emphasize the point. Uh, and I've spoken to people from uh, refugees from Iraq, you know, um, uh, uh, Walid Nasif, who actually lives in Canada now, is an amazing person, brought up in Baghdad mm. and had to leave. Uh, I've spoken to First Nations communities. I've spoken to... Uh, I spoke to uh, Frederick Riley from Weave, who's a black man, grew up in in Michigan and went to college in Atlanta and his experience and uh, just like people from all over the world. And, and uh, even if no one listens to it, I love it. You know, I'm carrying on. (laughs) 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 
then uh, I wrote the Compassion Project uh, along with my dear friend Lindsay Clark because uh, I wanted to have a document somewhere where if people were interested, they could go and look and see what the full model looks like. If you want to get these incredible outcomes, how do you do it? Well, go and have a read of the Compassion Project and that will give you a clue as to the, uh, how we did it. And then, um, and then I wrote the book and I was chatting to some friends in the US and Canada and we thought, well, why don't we have a kind of book launch and, uh, in the US and North America? And, and it, from there, we just went on and we thought, oh, yeah, book launch is all very well, but uh, why don't we do a bit more than that? And we ended up with uh, the Elevate Compassion Summit series. Um, so we wanted to um, really just as a way of getting the message out there about bringing everyone together, all the people who are interested in, in developing communities, in having a better life. Let's have a, a not just a, a, an online seminar, but let's have a series of events. So we've got a couple of days, like a couple of half days, and, and it's going to be followed up by uh, a monthly lunchtime a seminar so that people can join in and people from the wide variety of different places who are interested in all this stuff can actually have a conversation and and hopefully it's a springboard for one of the things i mean you you've been speaking about advocacy and i think uh, that there's so much of this great work going on but there's not a unified voice mm-hmm. so why don't we all get together and have a unified voice? Why don't we create this compassionate communities movement or whatever we want to call it and, and make sure that voice of communities is heard and let's make sure that that voice is louder than the negativity and selfish interests of businesses and politics and all of that rubbish. Let's make sure there is a strong voice there that says, who is this benefiting when you're making that decision? Is it benefiting you or is it benefiting the people of the world, the communities? What's the impact of these decisions? Because it's, it's critical that those stories are held to account. It's critical. And what the last thing we need is to have this political negativity negativity of the type that's whipped up that was whipped up by trump of racism and division you know that's that's a disaster for our world and we need to find a way of coming together and building trust and relationships so the elevate compassion series is it's just a small ambition you know <laughs> <laughs> you know what though this is this is what i've learned julian number one mover and a shaker Thank you. I, I love everything that you're throwing down. We're going to have links to all this in the show notes Two, This is how it starts. My friend, like this is one thing that, you know, the journey with the podcast and all the stuff that we've been doing has taught me is that it starts with action and you never know what, how much this could build. You don't know about how big of a movement that is. It's going to be, but it comes with a vision and what I see in you, I see it. You change, we call it changing the boogie on the show, just changing the culture, changing the, the flow, because this is what needs to happen. You know, there was, a, as you said, that Trump force was strong. Four years of, four plus years of that negative energy and it permeated. And what we need is the opposite. We need that compassion lens. And if you, it means putting people together with the like minds to bring out that message, 
overcome the political side, overcome the, you know, um, racist negativity, hate. Let's do it. Yes, Let's do see it. it rain. I love it. I yeah. love it. <laughs> Dr. Abel changing that boogie, my friends. <laughs> Thank you once again for doing this. I am so excited about everything you're, you're, you're creating. And uh, I mean it truly wholeheartedly that you're, you're a special human being. And thanks for doing the show. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And I would I would reflect those compliments because you're doing the same. And uh, it's great to have the opportunity to chat to you. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. Quadcast Nation. That was spectacular. Man, I hope you leave here feeling that you could add that little bit of a compassion piece in your life, whether it's for yourself or others. It's what we do to change that boogie, yo. Dr. Abel, you're a prince. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook at Quadcast. Leave any comments at Quadcast99 at gmail.com. Leave that five star rating. You know, this is all part of us changing that boogie. we got to raise that profile. So leave that five-star rating on iTunes. That makes all the difference in the world. People, stay safe. Thanks for the support. And we're going to connect again real quick. Peace.